Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Techspansive. This is Sean Dubervac at Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. A lot of announcements this week, and so we will dive right in. We'll start with a look at the Samsung's news that they released at their Unpacked event this week, and we'll... Yep. Uh, we'll We'll try to dive in and take a look at some of those things. Ross, do you have any quick takes, maybe a, a quick recap of some of the, the key announcements that took place and we can dive into them? Sure. Uh, you know, it was a huge event uh, in terms of products released. It represented the 10th anniversary of the launch of the uh, Galaxy first Galaxy S phone. And so there was uh, plenty of nostalgia, but but far more emphasis on what Samsung is doing now, launching four phones in the Galaxy S10 family, uh, including one uh, optimized for uh, 5G networks and uh, two versions of the Galaxy Fold, which is their long-awaited folding phone that they had been hinting about for uh, a couple of months. And they also threw in a couple of uh, wearables as well. And what were some of your key takeaways from the news as you saw them well I mean, certainly it was interesting they started with the fold that was their really yeah, their, that, I, that I thought was odd i you know i thought they were going to save that for a one more thing kind of uh save the best for last so I, I was a little surprised about that yeah why do you think they did that uh maybe just to get uh, more of a, a leg up on the competition it is widely expected that Huawei is going to announce their own folding phone at uh, Mobile World Congress, which is uh, next week uh, from when we're recording this. So maybe they just wanted to get the news out there uh, as as, uh, as quickly as possible because, uh, yeah, Sean, I, I think in, in some ways uh, put a little bit of a, uh, a, a damper on the S10 news to follow, even though there were a lot of nice improvements in those phones. So how many foldable displays do you think we will see at MWC? We saw some, obviously, at CES, and then there's been rumors of Samsung coming into this market for a very long time and, and arguably going back a, a year to CES 2018. We saw LG and Samsung both showing rollable displays, L LG bringing to market this year a rollable television. And so mm -hmm. uh, the idea of form factors changing you know, has been on the horizon for a very long time. You mentioned Huawei. Thinking about MWC next week as a as a key announcement platform, how many foldable displays, rollable displays, bendable displays are we going to see? <laughs> Break, breakable displays, we're going to see it all. Right. Uh, you know, there. I, I think that just about all of the leaders, um, with maybe Apple as an exception for a number of reasons, will release foldable displays. And the nice thing about it is that it really uh, allows companies to differentiate on form factor for the first time in a long time. I mean, in the feature phone era, you had sliding phones and folding phones and uh, all, all these different kinds of uh, clamshell phones. And and now uh, the, um, uh, the, the slate is reset. Uh, so for example, the Huawei phone that we've seen pictures of has the screen on the outside, uh, the folding screen on the outside of the device, the shell of the device, mm -hmm. whereas the Samsung phone has the fold uh, on the inside of the device, and they added a second screen to compensate for that uh, on the front. And the advantage there is it keeps the phone uh, a bit narrower. Uh, but there, it, it also opens up opportunities to do things like maybe trifold phones, you know, just like a wallet, where you could perhaps have a, uh, a screen with two folds, and it allows it to um, uh, fold out to something approaching a full page display or, or kind of a classic iPad display. So uh, it's a good shot in the arm for, for the industry. Uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how the, the various vendors interpret it. Of course, it's not only limited to phones. Uh, a lot of rumors that uh, Microsoft has been working on a couple of folding form factors for uh, PC laptop class devices as well. So. Well, and to your point, 
I mean, the biggest debates in hardware have been, what do you do with your notch? What does your notch look like, right? And I'm, I'm kind of so bored by this debate, and, and that is well, that a, didn't take long. I mean, the the notch is only what two years old, I guess. Um, well, no, but I mean, the debate is how do you do the notch? And, and we see with with Sam, you know, with Samsung Galaxy S10, looking at other types of notches, hole, hole punch displays, or right. or something else. So, um, but that seems like such a a, a minor detail from a person, you know, from a, a form factor experience than what we could see with, with foldable displays. Mm -hmm. What do you think the use case scenarios look like? I mean, for, from my standpoint, we've seen phones getting bigger yep. and I like the idea of foldable displays being able to take our current size and making them smaller. And that, that doesn't seem where we're going right now. I mean, it seems like what we'll do is we'll take, bigger phones and, and make them bigger, turn them oh, into to tablet-esque phones. So and, when and you, I, go ahead. And I was going to just say, I think some of that is, you know, deals with the, with the yield capabilities of early technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you think of any, dis, especially display technologies early on, it's difficult to get them very small and it's difficult to get them extremely large and, well, and there's and also certainly... volume you know volume purchase issues playing exactly that also. yeah yeah and so you tend to have displays that are either bigger than you want or smaller than you want and um you know so i think the big question is are are these displays or will foldables be bigger than we want them to be or will they actually be smaller than we want them to be well the time on the other side, uh, so given where we are now with these things folding out to about a seven inch display, the, the question becomes, is that enough of a differentiator over you know what today is typically maybe a six and a half inch screen on the high end, or in the case of the 5G uh, Galaxy S10, I, I think it's gonna have a 6.7 inch display. So now you have access to all that screen real estate Sure, you know, maybe uh, taken up more than its share of your of your pocket availability, but but it's providing uh, a lot of screen real estate all the time, you know, without having to unfold the device. And let's face it, you know, that's that's a second step. That's why all of these phones have to have some kind of front screen because you have to be able to use them as a phone. You have to be able to react in the moment mm -hmm. uh, and. Um, so, so that's that's the other thing that's that's pushing the size question. Uh, my preference would be for the opposite. You know, something that is the size of one of the larger phablets today that expands into something even bigger. Because mm -hmm. I, I think we have, you know, accepted big phones. Um, I'm sure there's uh, a good part of the market that would like something smaller, and I think the Galaxy S10e helps speak to that market, but but really in terms of new capabilities, uh, that's uh, that's where I would see the personal payoff for me. So, and what and what do you think the timing on this is? So, Galaxy Fold will become available April twenty sixth is its release date. Price point just under two grand. Yep. Um, so adoption will probably be pretty small. They're, they've positioned it as a luxury item, which I think is exactly the right place to position this. Yep. So it becomes the, the device that early adopters grab to, uh, you know, to show off to their friends. And I, and I do think it is an incredible technical feat. That looks great. Yeah, that it looks accomplished. great. Uh, and so there's something to, to be said to that, even if it's still not quite where it will be in two years time or 10 years time, the, the technical capabilities are, are there. And that's, you know, an engineering feat that I think you will have some market, some percent of the market gravitate to, to, to highlight that they are early adopters and willing to spend high dollars on cutting edge technology. Yes, and, and in the fall last year when uh, Samsung was providing more details uh, about uh, this device, it also talked about how it had to re-engineer its entire OLED display capability uh, in, in order to produce this. So that was another tacit way of saying, 
hey, this is a serious endeavor. Don't expect you know the uh, your your thirty nine dollar track phone phone to uh, have this feature anytime soon. But but it's also clear again that they're not going to be alone in the market for long, and it's uh, certainly safe to assume that some of these other uh, companies will undercut them significantly on price. I would think that the Huawei has a chance of coming in uh, at a less expensive price point, not only because typically those phones do undercut Samsung phones, but because they're dealing with one less screen. So that that also gives them an advantage uh, in terms of components. Uh, Other key announcements that you that you were uh, interested by coming out of Unpacked? Um, you know, the, I think the 5G, uh, it's it's kind of easy to o- overlook the significance of that, but uh, there they are. Uh, and, uh, of course, as it could be expected, a lot of carrier support for, um, uh, for, for these new devices coming first to Verizon uh, here in the U.S. Uh, and then the, the um, phones, I'm sorry, the watches, uh, were, you know, I, I think they showed a, a nod toward expanding the market. I'm not sure if it will do much for Samsung's market share, but but uh, smaller watches, more active, kind of more youthful uh, target uh, does away with kind of the big dial uh, control that goes around the perimeter uh, of the watch, which is a neat user interface element, but it, it does add to the size of the watch. So this is a, a far more streamlined design, a less expensive design, uh, and uh, you know may may help bring in some some new users uh, to the Samsung uh, watch fold. Yeah, yeah. Any, any other uh, you know any other thoughts? Any other things you'd add? I, I would we... say that yeah, just some of the other things on the S10 uh, were arguably playing catch up, you know, the, uh, this idea that it can act as a wireless charging pad and, you know, charge the Galaxy Buds. Uh, We didn't mention those, but that's another thing that they Mm -hmm. announced, but didn't go into a lot of great detail. So I'm not really expecting an AirPods killer there, uh, but it can be charged from the back of the phone, which is kind of neat. And, um, oh, the uh, in- screen fingerprint unlock, which we have seen from uh, a couple of Chinese brands, uh, which Qualcomm also said uh, we should expect to see on far more devices uh, moving forward in 2019 and beyond. And that raises a a real interesting question about where we are in terms of fingerprint recognition versus face recognition. But uh, I think that's a debate for another day. (laughs) Yeah. So... You think it's interesting that Samsung announced so many products at their unpacked event as opposed to waiting a week and uh, bringing them all to MWC as they would have in the past? I mean, certainly MWC has been the launch pad for a number of, of Galaxy phones over the last couple of years, sure, uh, sure. but instead they're using their, their own event. And, and obviously every brand would prefer to use their own event uh, as Apple does so successfully. But uh, you really see Samsung doing it just really just a couple of days before uh, they'll, they'll take the stage again in Barcelona and bring, you know, to try to bring some of these things to market. Obviously they can continue some of these storylines that they're building out. And maybe that's, maybe that's a new strategy. We'll see companies follow moving forward. Big announcements the week before big trade shows like CES or MWC. And then they'll, uh, you know, build out that storyline when they're actually on the show floor. See, that that's kind of what I thought they would do. Uh, but the, and, and certainly in the past, even when they have announced a product at MWC, they have branded it as an unpacked event at MWC, kind of a show within a show, even though yeah. it's just, you know, kind of a big press conference. Uh, but um, they, uh, the thing is that a lot of those companies that do their own events don't go to these kinds of um, larger trade shows. So Apple, for example, will not exhibit at MWC, does not exhibit at CES. Uh, Same thing with uh, Microsoft. Um, But Samsung also uh, 
you know, it's easy to forget they are a uh, an infrastructure provider as well. And it's also easy to forget uh, with all the phone announcements that Mobile World Congress really at its heart is an infrastructure show. Definitely. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, that that may be their focus there. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to see. And certainly there will be a lot of infrastructure conversation happening at MWC with the global deployment of 5G. Mm -hmm. And and you, you you saw some early 5G announcements at CES. You see Samsung kind of continuing to build out that 5G storyline. And then you'll see much more at MWC just as a progression of the year going forward but but probably many of those announcements will happen on the, the infrastructure and side that's to, a, to your point it's a pretty um interesting time in the infrastructure space with all the controversy uh surrounding mm-hmm. huawei and what countries are going to let it in and some whispers a couple of weeks ago that uh they may not be allowed to remain part of the GSMA, which is the group that puts on Mobile World Congress. Uh, so uh, things, you know, the winds seem to change uh, week by week, maybe now a little bit more in Huawei's favor. Uh, but um, uh, maybe Samsung has an opportunity to pick up some mindshare given, given all that controversy. Well, and, and 5G has taken on and the race to 5G has taken on a nationalistic tone. And maybe mm-hmm. that's everything uh, today but we even saw president trump tweeting out uh, over the past week uh calls to accelerate 5g deployment and become yes uh you know a global leader of 5g and and not and fall 6G. behind yeah and and of 6g <laughs> that's true don't we'll just skip right ahead that's right uh you know and who it's need, funny who, because, needs, who needs that decade of, <laughs> of development time yeah. yeah that's right i mean we you know we we're probably looking at a decade of deployment sure. for 5G uh, and two decades before we see <laughs> mass adoption of, of 6G right. and what, you know, what 6G will obviously look like. We haven't even really fully finalized everything uh, as part of the, the 5G standard setting process. Uh, there's still one more release as part, part of the 5G deployment and that isn't coming until mid 2020. Um, so we'll still see a lot more of the next 24 months, but, um, you know, and so Huawei and other companies get caught in this nationalistic debate of, you know, of 5G. And it's, it's interesting to me because I can understand it at some level with something like AI, but 5G Mm. being a a cellular technology is somewhat geographically defined. Um, Yes, there are all of these things that might potentially become possible in a 5G environment, smart factories, uh, you know, self-driving vehicles, other things like that, that that are empowered in a 5G environment. And that's maybe where you really want to take the leadership. Uh, But it's hard to imagine that a quicker 5G deployment in one market sets them apart from 5G showing up in a, in a, another market, you know, in the, in the coming years. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, uh, I think you're exactly right, Sean. It's, it's not so much about, um, having access to the technology, you know, cause virtually there, there may be a short gap of leadership, but certainly not a long one, uh, in terms of access to the technology, it's how that technology is deployed, you know, how companies use, are able to use that technology. And maybe some of that, comes down to the regulatory uh, environment, uh, yeah. but only uh, insofar as the business practices that they are allowed to do come down to the regulatory uh, environment. Other than that, I'm not sure why, f- with one exception, I'm not really sure why 5G is such uh, a critical national infrastructure issue, whereas 4G was not. Okay, I mean, if someone were to shut down the 4G network or some way to shut down all the 4G networks in in the U.S. right now, that would be pretty crippling. Uh, I think um, in in, and, you know, maybe the difference is that in 5G, there's a far greater opportunity for it to take over home broadband as well. So, you know, maybe there's this idea of the mono tech uh infrastructure leaving us a little more vulnerable and i'm sure there will be uh 
advances in 5G that speak more specifically to military applications, first responder applications. I, I think that's being built into the spec. So, so that to me is certainly cause for concern, but, but in a general sense, I'm not sure it's that much more of a vulnerability. Well, yeah, and to your point, I think you're right. It is the applications that come about in 5G environments. And many of those uh, will be dictated by what comes in release 16, which again is scheduled for mid-2020. Those are things like machine-to-machine communication. So that Mm -hmm. will show up in manufacturing. That will show up in self-driving vehicles. It's things like network slicing so that you can have priority uh, for data related to first responders or to, to other applications. And so it's those type of environments that are empowered by 5G that, that could differentiate countries in, in a competitive landscape. But again, we're looking at you know, years for those. It's not in terms of it just being a cellular network that sits alongside or sits on top of a 4G environment, but it's it's all of these other uh, com- you know, more, p- perhaps more competitive elements that are empowered by 5G. So that's that's a good explanation, I think, from the standard side, but maybe we can switch gears a bit uh, and talk about the application side. And one of these applications that uh, they say is going to benefit from 5G is virtual reality. So thought maybe we would chat a bit about VR. Uh, I think that, and- yeah, that's great. Yeah. So uh, about a week ago, I got to try a new VR headset. Uh, It's been in development actually for quite a while, but uh, last year I tried a beta version of it, uh, and now it has been released. It's from a company called uh, Vario, uh, V-A-R-J-O. It's a Finnish company, some uh, ex-Nokia folks, speaking of wireless. Uh, And this headset's claim to fame is that it can produce... Uh, images uh, at the resolution of the human eye. So they're, you know, sort of like a retina display for uh, for 2D. Uh, this can produce uh, VR images so real uh, that they are virtually indistinguishable from actual reality. Now, there are some compromises involved, as you might imagine. Uh, so when you wear this thing, the high-resolution area is confined to a more limited field of view uh, in front of your field of view, uh, in front of your your the scope of your your vision, and the area surrounding that you can still see in VR, but it's lower resolution VR, more uh, aligned with what you would see out of an Oculus or Vive headset today. But within that sweet spot. Uh, it is just incredible. And uh, it is not a consumer product for the foreseeable future. It is being used to design airline cockpits and uh, uh, cars at a very fine level of detail, very high-end CAD software. Uh, I believe the price of it is $6,000 with a mandatory $1,000 service agreement for the first year. So uh, probably not the kind of thing you're going to play a a rocking game of, of, um, you know, of of a VR shoot-em-up on, but uh, at least not for some time. Uh, But the company, a couple of things to note, I I think are interesting. Uh, The company does plan eventually to come down to the consumer market. Uh, And uh, later this year, they're going to release an add-on to the headset that makes it capable of augmented reality by removing the front part of the visor and uh, installing cameras that can capture what's in front of you. So uh, that should be uh, very exciting as well. But the company said as it spoke to its customers, its early test customers, they said, hey, we can use VR now and give me, you know, I'm willing to accept this relatively limited field of view, which you know, to be fair, is quite substantial. I think they compared it to what you see out of the HoloLens today. So, you know, usable. Uh, and uh, and that can be a benefit to me right now because, it, again, it allows my engineers, my designers to see models uh, at a level of detail that otherwise is not possible today. So so very cool product, uh, certainly out of the uh, reach. Oh, and 
don't even you know get into the horsepower of the PC that you need to drive this thing at its maximum yeah. resolution. I mean, that's that's probably even more than the headset. So, uh, so it's definitely a, a horsepower intensive thing, a professional tool, uh, but of course a, a glimpse into where uh, directionally the the industry is going, and and that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and and IDC pointed this out in some recent forecasts when they look at AR and VR solutions that it's really being led by the commercial sector. So you've mm-hmm. got their share of of spending on AR and VR going from about sixty five percent this year to eighty percent in twenty twenty two. So it actually grows, and so we should start to see more of these type of uh, commercial applications being deployed as the spending in that space increases um, and and obviously it's coming off very low bases right now but you see really strong growth in AR and VR spending I, IDC sees compound annual growth rates of 70 percent you know year on year for the next five or so years uh-huh. and so it would make sense that you would see growth in in areas like this where you've got headsets costing six grand and you've got yearly, annual license fees and other things like that compared to the high grade, but still consumer oriented uh, VR headsets and AR headsets. And and a lot of those uh, products that started out as smartphone accessories have really taken a beating. So going back to um, the Samsung announcement, you know, in the past they have traditionally also released a uh, a gear VR headset uh, to accommodate their new phones. And the word is that uh, their existing, the latest version of their existing VR headset will work with the Galaxy S10. I, I think it may require a, an adapter, but they're not investing in a new one. Uh, and it seems that a lot of those inexpensive sub $200 or sub $150 uh, headsets have um, just been outclassed by the Oculus Go, which delivers a, a, a very usable uh, experience for for about that price point. Um, and it should be interesting to see what happens with the follow-on to that that was announced, uh, which we I'm sure we discussed on the podcast some time ago, uh, which brings it a step up, right? So it's not quite at the level of the professional tools. I guess it would be fair to call it an enthusiast tool. Um, so, so maybe it's not spreading as quickly as uh, people in the industry would hope it would, uh, but uh, it's definitely finding its market, and the users who are embracing it are opting for more sophisticated solutions. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to just see how companies start to position themselves in this market. So. I guess, do you feel like companies can survive as hardware companies, given that so much of uh, the, you know, the applications are going to be commercial oriented? Do you feel like you can survive on hardware alone? You know, I think that becomes a big struggle for some of these companies. Obviously, in the consumer space, you can overlay gaming applications or you know or other applications and so that's how you differentiate yourself and that's how you provide a a suite of services but in the commercial side that becomes more difficult i I think everyone in the business at this point has some other revenue stream Uh, so there's htc and uh, valve uh, working on vive and and that is uh, to enhance the the stream business experience, which is a robust business. You have Facebook doing it as kind of a I don't think it's fair to call it an R and D project, but they they definitely are taking the long view with it. They certainly have, you know, th- this is their their Google X uh, for all intents and purposes. You know, this is their long bet. Uh, and, you know, at their events, they talk ultimately about this thing. They talk about it as a game device now, but they keep holding out the hope that it will become the new paradigm of computing. And then I think, yeah, anyone on the commercial side, you're you're going to see it bundled in. Uh, oh, and then, you have, of course, you've got Sony, right, which you know, in some ways is the market leader. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. they have the game revenue stream. 
Uh, and then uh, on the commercial side, yeah, you, you, I think you have to think about it the same way you think about any, any commercial PC vendor thinks about their business, which is we're not going to make a ton of margin on uh, the client hardware. We'll, argue, we'll arguably make more margin than we do on PCs, uh, and we'll certainly make uh, more margin than we would in the consumer <laughs> space, but uh, we have to tie it in to servers hosting the content, to services to manage the content, uh, and uh, you know the, the other kinds of businesses that Dell and HP really get out of their commercial engagements. Yeah, and I think in this area, especially, there's going to be very specific, very well-defined services. So when when Mm -hmm. I talk to companies that are experimenting and exploring this area, they are using very specific applications in kind of very well-defined domains. So for example, in engineering or construction, they're using it in you know, in architecture, they're using it in very specific applications. Uh, and and um, so it, uh, my sense is that while we talk about VR and AR in very general terms, it is going to be very well-defined areas, very differentiated and specialized services. The, uh, the Vario demo also, uh, for me, included a pretty impressive real estate demo where you could walk around a little bit, uh, but because of the resolution, I mean, you really got a sense of when you looked at the couch in in a living room, what the fabric looked like uh, on that couch. It was, uh, as I said, pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. So so that, that, that level of quality will probably open up some new, will definitely open up some new possibilities for the companies that can uh, take advantage of it. Yeah, and I think there's a there's a strong desire and demand to just have content that's recorded. So mm-hmm. I was talking with an engineering company this week, and they'll do pre-construction assessments of neighboring buildings when they put up high-rises. So they'll essentially go through neighboring buildings and video the entire building so that if complaints arise that there was a, a crack formed because it put a skyscraper in next door, they'll pull up the videotape and look at that apartment building or that office and try to ascertain if the crack was already there or not. Wow. And so you could imagine being able to do that. That, in sounds, a more, that sounds more like an insurance issue, but... Uh, it is. Well, yeah, yeah. so, I mean, it, it obviously is an insurance... It's an insurance issue, uh, <laughs> to be sure. Um, and it's typically done by the company that would be liable for that type of damage would be the mm. company putting in the construction. And so being able to, you know, jump and do that in a VR setting would be a significant step up in efficiency and productivity. Cause today it's, it's still primarily done in an analog way. You, mm-hmm. you might be recording it and saving it on, on a digital tape, but you still have to fast forward to that particular uh, you know, section of of the tape, whereas right. being able to just jump into that building virtually and then right. move virtually to the, to the area in question could accelerate processes like that. So cool. it'll be interesting to see. Well, so let's transition now to some other news that we saw coming out of Apple. Apple uh, was uh, it was announced in the Wall Street Journal this week that they might be entering the credit card market or even re-entering the credit card market. They had a, a credit card uh, many years ago. But yes, co-branded the- with Citibank. I right. had one. Yeah. So it, it, it is the way that many early Apple users financed different Apple products, got you know points and other things that they could use towards Apple products. So they could be re-entering this space together with Goldman uh, Sachs and, and issuing a essentially a co-branded uh, credit card that would tie into Apple Pay. There's still some kind of early reporting on this from the Wall Street Journal that they might offer consumers 2% back. So it's a pretty lucrative mm-hmm. card from that perspective. Um, Ross, any early thoughts on this and the implications of this? Well, you, you stole my, my nostalgia 
uh, right. I was going to talk about the affinity card, but this is no, you know, maybe it's an affinity card, but, but that's not really what it's about. Uh, uh, to your point, it's, it's about, you know, a cash back reward as opposed to say some notion of points to, uh, to buy Apple you know, credit for Apple products. But, but what it really is, is Apple pay coming full circle, you know, uh, the migration of the transaction vehicle going from the card to the phone, establishing a system for that phone-based transaction, and then bringing it back uh, into the the world of cards. And I guess one thing that it says to me is maybe this is a little bit of an admission that despite all of Apple's early arguments that paying by phone was a superior process to paying by card paying by card is really not so bad you know uh, it's, it's a pretty good process uh, so yeah, apple has got to be looking overseas right they've got to be looking at wechat which sure. it has a demanding uh, and a, com- a commanding uh, payment environment in china where people are paying for all kinds of things not just activities that they're doing in the physical world, but things like rent and other things they're paying through WeChat. So there's a tremendous payment platform and they have got to be seeing more purchases going online, more more transactions taking place online and many of those going through the mobile phone. And so this is an opportunity to bridge that gap because in the US we are less phone centric when it comes to payments and more credit card centric. Uh, when it comes to payments. And so this is a way perhaps of trying to tie those together as we bridge from credit card payments to traditional you know, mobile payments, mobile phone payments, payments coming from the, the hardware, if you will. Up to now, the watch has been their foray into mm-hmm. paying when you don't have your phone on you. And they've made good progress there. But the watch is still a relatively expensive item. It is, of course, tied to the iPhone. Um, so, you know, this this might be a way to uh, bring more people into the Apple Pay fold who don't necessarily have iPhones or, or Apple Watches. Uh, so uh, that may be uh, an opportunity as well. Or, you know, again, when you're in situations where leave your watch at home, you may leave your phone at home. It, it happens. So the Wall Street Journal also reported that there will likely be extra features on Apple's wallet app, mm-hmm. which will mm-hmm. let you do things like set spending goals, track and monitor rewards, manage your spending, manage balances. So it it's Apple taking payments as we know them today and perhaps overlaying some additional features and additional services. And this is an area that that Apple likes to go. They like to go into an area that's established and then they like to add in a much more enjoyable consumer experience, a much more fluid, if you will, and seamless consumer experience that ties hardware and software together and try to to differentiate that way and, and overlay some additional features on top of that. Also and they, a competitive answer to PayPal, right? Which also has sure. its own credit card. So yeah, and and they've they've gained good traction in Apple Pay. They've had some some growth there in the the December quarter. They reported 1.8 billion transactions, double the volume from a year ago. So it's clearly an error area of growth. As we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, Apple has extremely high service margins, and so they need to move into high margin businesses. Healthcare is one that I've that I've thrown out there many times, and I think that's still an area they'll continue to push into. And then financial services is, is another one where the potential to grab high margin dollars is prevalent, and I think you'll see Apple continue to move into that to that space. They could easily drive hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over the next five years, just by capturing some of the the, the points on transactions that take place on this card and ultimately on the phone. And it's another potential value add for the customers as well. And another way to leverage the trust relationship. And another example of Apple We've talked about this phenomenon a little bit, but not not a great deal. 
more more we, we've talked about it more in reference to Amazon, um, but seeing what works on the platform and co-opting it, right? Mm-hmm. So there have been a number of apps uh, for the iPhone and, of course, Android that have tried to get people who may not be thinking of uh, savings or investment to understand the power and potential of those things, you know, being it setting aside, uh, you know, an app like Acorns, you're setting aside a little bit uh, every week uh, into into a savings account or Mint, uh, which is owned by Intuit for your banking. Uh, people who are just not really part of uh, you know doing doing business with a traditional bank uh, right now for whatever reason uh, it, it provides a way to potentially help them build savings and and learn about investment and and build investments so so that can be and, huge for users too yeah and they and they clearly take a very user centric perspective so it could be uh, it could be interesting to see what these extra features are and that's where mm-hmm. apple will differentiate themselves and again i i gotta believe that they look at what's happening in, in asia with companies like wechat that are controlling so many aspects of the individual experience so they're mm-hmm. a, it's a communication platform it's right. a financial platform and if that starts to impact the direction we move in the U.S., then we're going to start to do more of these activities in a, a single environment. Apple recognizes hardware is only going to take them so far, but if somebody has, a, you know, the, the WeChat-esque app for the U.S. market where it's communications, it's payments, it's all of these other things, then it it essentially edges Apple out on their own device. And so Apple wants to get there first and be a, a leader in there and, and thinks that they can by integrating it seamlessly into the hardware. And and iMessage, right, where they're already right. integrating exactly. CRM and stuff. I, yeah. I would just say, though, that dynamics are a little different here. And Facebook certainly tried to imitate or capitalize on some of that What's uh, uh, WeChat dynamic yeah. with uh, Messenger, right? Tried, right. you know, send money via Messenger, do all these WeChat-y uh, kinds of things via Messenger, and they, they really tried to put it into a platform. There were Messenger apps in the App Store, and they just never really went anywhere despite Messenger's massive uh, installed base. Let's close that out, and let's move into our final section, which we introduced last uh, last episode, which we'll fan call our, yep, our, our fan favorite lightning session. Yeah. Uh, we've got a couple of topics that we'll key up in quick succession and just offer one or two thoughts on those from the prior week. So the first of those was another announcement from Samsung that they will now allow users to remap the Bigsby button on Samsung phones. In the past, you could essentially turn the button off, but you couldn't remap it to a different activity. Well, first, they didn't even let you turn it off. So it's been a slide. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, So your quick take on that, Ross? Uh, customer dem- customers demanded it, uh, and they're hoping inertia maintains it, uh, and maybe they feel more secure that Bixby is expanding beyond the phone, that they feel more comfortable executing that now. That's my take. Yeah, I, I agree with that last point, that they are clearly investing in Bixby, uh, you know, along with this announcement. They also announced greater support for Bigsby in a variety of new languages. And so there's more, more um, stressing. Yeah. Of, and the, of course, yes, the other hardware. So there's a broader focus on Bigsby, a stronger focus on Bigsby at the same time that uh, they're allowing individuals to have a little more flexibility with their, their phone. And I think you'll see routines come out of these things. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having quick commands that, that let you, do a variety of different things. So for example, walking into a movie theater and, and being able to easily set a do not disturb feature, which Mm -hmm. takes takes down the brightness, turns off the screen, turns off the ringer, those type of uh, routines. So the button is dead. Long live Bixby. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. Uh, The next point uh, that we thought we'd bring up in our lightning round is some news around Intel announcing that they didn't expect to 
see 5G modems in any devices until 2020. Uh, Ross, your your take on that news? Uh, my take on that news is that we shouldn't expect any 5G iPhones until 2020, as <laughs> Apple is certainly not going to use Qualcomm's uh, 5G modems, and uh, all signs point to them using Intel. So while Mobile World Congress is a big 5G party uh, this week, this coming week, uh, Apple is not not celebrating just yet. And and that's what we would expect. My point would be we don't expect Apple to have a 5G phone in the marketplace in 2019. They'll wait until there's wider deployment, greater clarity about some of the use case scenarios. And, and so 2020, and maybe even later, probably mm-hmm. not later, but could possibly be later, uh, really wouldn't matter whether it's 2020 or 2021, in my opinion. Uh, we'll, we'll see Apple move into that, that space. So Apple. So clearly there's already been conversations there with Intel and Intel has probably roadmapped some of that timing out uh, for them. Uh, The third story we wanted to hit, we had two stories related. Singapore Airlines and American Airlines both confirmed that some of their seat back screens have embedded cameras. They reported at the same time that those are disabled after a, a photo of one of those went viral. At the same time this week, we had some news that uh, Google had not previously announced and disclosed that they have microphones built into some of their Nest camera products. And uh, so Business Insider called this note out. A Google spokesperson reported to them that it was a just an error, not a, um, an intentional or malicious error, but that they had not disclosed that in any any of the device's product materials. Your hot take on that, Ross? My my take is if it's active, you have to disclose, <laughs> right? And Google admitted it was a mistake. And it's kind of um, uh, paradoxical given that when they introduced the Google Home product, they made a big deal out of noting how there was no cameras on that product. So they're, they definitely understand the power of disclosing whether certain kinds of sensors are in the product. In terms of the airline though, I don't think they really have any responsibility. You know, if it's built into there for future application, but the application, you know, but it's never turned on, it's not a factor. I don't think they have to disclose. So that's my take on it. Yeah, so I, I think it's really interesting. You're seeing microphones show up everywhere. You're seeing cameras show up everywhere. These sensors are being deployed, and they're being deployed because the prices have have gone to zero. Yeah, and right. so you right. can put them in everything. And so you should expect to see products ship with these products. And to your point, Ross, we might see more companies announcing we have intentionally excluded this particular feature whether it's a a camera or a microphone but i think there you know they there's still so much so much experimentation in this space we don't know how the cameras will be used how the microphones will be used because the cost is close to zero they're going to include them and so know that at some point there is the possibility that these will be turned on and i can think of lots of really interesting applications with seatback cameras whether we want those as consumers is another question but uh, you could easily imagine how that could be used and become a source of big data where you could create customized personalized services for for individuals and really differentiate yourself so a lot more to come in that this is just the opening chapter in in the future of uh, a world with embedded cameras and microphones everywhere yes yeah uh, and then just one other final quick take. There were uh, some early rumors that at ne- next month's Game Developers Conference, Google will be revealing a game streaming service similar to what we know as a Netflix-like streaming service, probably building on the success of their project Stream. Your quick take on that, Ross? I mean, people have been trying this for at least a decade. It probably has a better opportunity as wireless networks get faster and the latency improves. Uh, but I think there are still a lot of challenges to making it a successful service 
uh, even though I can easily understand why Google would want to do it. Um, there were rumors that Apple was going to do it too. So uh, we, and Microsoft is thinking of doing it too. So we may have multiple providers uh, for this kind of service. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if or how it commoditizes the, uh, the gaming market. Yeah, and you, ha you have a very robust gaming market. About half of households have a game console, uh, and they tend to replace that when it goes out. So you have a very dedicated, installed base of, of gamers. Clearly, this plays to Google's strengths of being able to stream rich content to a, a plethora of devices. They tend to be in the device space that doesn't necessarily uh, historically support graphic intense mm -hmm. applications. If you think about Chromebooks and other things like that. So right. they've got Chromebooks filled uh, in, uh, you know, they've really dedicated that to students and to schools. And so they've filled houses with inexpensive Chromebooks. And the next piece of that is to then drive up user uh, you know, use time on these devices and drive up use cases on these devices. And so this is a way for them to deploy graphic intensive games on hardware that historically wouldn't have supported that. So I, th I think it's a big win for Google if they can do it successfully because they can enter a market that they really don't have a, a strong hold in yet. And that's gaming on all of these other uh, devices that and are you, you mentioned netflix but perhaps an even better uh, companion service would be youtube right which they it would be kind of a sister service to youtube right here are your videos right. here are your games so yeah and, it, and that plays into an area where they've seen a lot of competition lately which is amazon's own owned twitch mm -hmm. which you see a lot of people streaming gaming content on and live streaming their their gaming sessions on and so to be able to reposition some of that and move it onto a Google platform would be a, a big win for them. So I think it's an area that is makes a lot of sense for Google. It should be very attractive to Google, which I think means that, that they are likely to stay very active in that space. Even if this uh, is in a successful launch, I think you'll continue to see them want to revisit this. Also, it is the generation that they want to target is that next up and coming generation that tends to be heavy gamers and that's true throughout history and so you can you'll see them continuously want to revisit that audience mm. good well that's a good place to stop thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can send me uh, comments and follow me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. We look forward to hearing all of your comments and encourage you to join us next week for another episode of Techspansive.